Radio Mano Papachango. Dr. Chris here. Chris Ryan, PhD. That's my tag. Uh, although I kind of regret it at this point, honestly. Um, I was setting up my website and my social media presence a couple years ago with a, a guy who offered to help me out, a social media guy, really nice guy. And um, he said, you know, these should all be uh, consistent. You should have the same name everywhere. And I was using uh, Chris Ryan, PhD, I think, you know, my website or something, or maybe, I don't know, it was in Facebook or something. I don't know. It was one of them had that tag. And he said, yeah, you should just make it all the same thing. And so I did. And now I feel like kind of a, a doofus because, I mean, you know, PhD, who gives a shit, you know? The only reason the PhD is there is because there are so many other Chris Ryans, Chris Ryan, Chris P. Ryan, Christopher Patrick Ryan, Christopher Ryan. You know, they were all taken. So I just slapped that on there. And um, to distinguish, you know, this particular Chris Ryan from the other Chris Ryans. And now I look like a uh, a douche, although douche. I don't know. Is douche a bad thing to say now? Is that anti-woman? Is there misogyny implied in douche? Some implied dirtiness of the vagina or something? I don't know. A dick? Hey, it's okay to call me a dick, right? I don't know. Whatever. Uh, So that's me, and that's why. And every once in a while, somebody will tweet something, or I'll see something on social media where they're like, oh, Mr. PhD thinks he's so cool, the PhD. Yeah, all right. I get it. You're right. Um, this is a very special episode. They're all special. All my children. I love all my children. But this one is really special because I've been sitting on this one for over a year. Uh, here's what happened. Not the pa- this past summer, but the summer before that, Cassie and I were invited to uh, this island off the coast of New Hampshire. yes. It's true, New Hampshire has a coast. I didn't even know there was a New Hampshire coast. But there's a little point where New Hampshire comes down to the ocean. And off that shore, a few miles, is Star Island, which is owned by the Unitarian Universalist um, religion. I I paused it calling it a religion because it's it's more like a club, really, than a religion. They're... um, they're, they're this very it's like got all the best aspects of a religion without the bad aspects so it's got the community it's got the continuity it's got the sort of let's all get together and help each other thing it's got all the the happiness and and um, sort of group support mutual mutuality of religions but no doctrine um so and to tell you just how open-minded they are, they invited me to come and give these morning lectures for a week. Um, 
And so Cassie and I went and spent a week there and met lots of people. And um, of course, I got in way over my head because... <laughs> okay, I just thought of this. This will tell you how, how fucked up my scheduling is. I figured I'd be almost done with Civilized to Death at that point. So I could just sort of like, you know, do five one-hour lectures based on five different chapters of the book and I'd have it all written basically and so it would just be easy and so in other words a year and a half ago I thought I would be where I am now on this book uh, needless to say I was not then uh, where I am now and so I I ended up having to sort of like do research and scramble and throw together five lectures and and uh, they weren't just like me yammering for 20 minutes and then, you know, group conversation. These are really smart people and they came prepared and they were taking notes and they were asking all these questions. And it was very, um, it was much more challenging than I thought it would have been. Um, so <laughs> I always get in shit like that. Same thing happened in SLN. I it's like, oh, yeah, I'll do a 20-hour workshop. And then after like three hours, I'm thinking, what the fuck am I going to do for the next 17 hours? Anyway, uh, wonderful people. We had a great time and uh, met some really wonderful people. And Cassie, as is her habit, um, connected with Cassie. Cassie is really good with people on the fringes. She has trouble with normal people. I'll tell you that. Um, but, you know, give her old people, babies, crazy people, criminals, um, you know, people with leprosy, uh, you know, anyone who's on the fringes of the world, just immediately she connects with them and they trust her and, you know, she forms these wonderful friendships, prisoners, you know, people like that. I don't know what it says about me that that we're together, but uh, she's not so good with normal people. She she finds normal people kind of hard to understand, but she, the you know the ones on the fringes she loves. Anyway, so she met this woman Lois uh, Lois Ames, who's eighty three years old, not crazy at all, as you'll hear. Uh, I didn't mean to imply that she was a, a nutcase or anything. She's the opposite of a nutcase. She's this amazingly sweet intelligent just wonderful wonderful woman anyway cassie met her and, and was spending time with her and she came to me and said listen you really should get lois on your podcast she's amazing and so i did and as you'll hear i went into it blind i hadn't really had a chance to to talk with lois much so this was you know the one and only conversation she and i really had um, and it was wonderful. And I just listened to it now while I was preparing this. And um, I, I'm just like glowing with love and admiration for this woman. Anyway, after we finished, she said to me, um, you know, I have I talked about people and, and things and stuff that I haven't thought about for years. And now I'm, I'm starting to feel a little worried about maybe I said things I shouldn't have said and you know maybe I betrayed a confidence or I, I don't know would you could you could I listen to this before you publish it 
And I said, of course, I'll, I'll make a, a sound file and who can I email it to? And Joe, oh, yeah, my daughter. And she gave me her daughter's email address. And so I made the sound file and I sent it off. Now, this is a year and a half ago and I never heard back. Uh, Lois doesn't do email and I think maybe her daughter <laughs> doesn't really do email either. So it sort of just went into the void and I didn't want to just go ahead and, and post it because I agreed that I'd you know wait until I heard from her, but then I never heard from her. So finally I got in touch with um, the guy who invited us to the island because they go every year to the same thing. And I said, hey, listen, if you see Lois, please ask her if it's cool for me to use this thing. And uh, so he finally got back to me a month or so ago saying, hey, I did see Lois. And she said, yeah, go ahead. So I got the go ahead. And so here we are. Lois Ames. Man, we talk about everything. We talk. And also, I should warn you, at the beginning, it's kind of noisy because we were recording in a room off uh, main hall and there were lots of people and you can hear noise in the background but the noise diminishes as we go and then the you know it's completely silent uh for most of the podcast so if the noise is bugging you at the beginning you can just you know jump ahead or just hold on it'll be better but you'll hear lois is amazing she's a poet um she was at harvard she talks about giving birth she talks about remembering world war ii when she was a kid she talks about friends of hers um, who had committed suicide. She, uh, you know, was uh, in a cult for a while, sort of peripherally. Very, just a fascinating, fascinating woman. Um, anyway, so that's, what's, that's what you're going to hear today. Before we get into that, thank you, everyone, for your uh, Amazon purchases. It's, uh, it's actually become uh, a major source of funding for the podcast this uh, Amazon thing so if you use Amazon and you haven't yet um, gone through the the links on my site please do so it won't cost you anything extra and it brings in some financing to the podcast which is always great um, just in the last seven days let's see somebody bought a pair of Levi's women's 525 perfect waist straight jeans Bear Creek all right and we got three bucks from that. Now, that just comes out of Amazon's profit margin. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It doesn't raise your price or anything. Um, a bunch of people bought Magicians of the Gods, The Forgotten Wisdom of Earth's Lost Civilization. Uh, I can see they went through there. Thank you, everybody. We got 8% of whatever you spent there. Uh, that's the new uh, Graham Hancock book. I wonder how that is. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, let me know, those of you who've been reading it. Uh, let's see, what else do I have here? I'm just looking at some people bought camera. Somebody bought a Nikon camera. Ooh, nice camera. Cost them 500 bucks. We get 20 Yeah, that's not bad. 20 bucks. you know? That's 20 bucks that would have just gone to Amazon if they hadn't gone through our portal. Um, people are buying stuff from Onnit. Uh, total strength, natural melon flavor. Great. Uh, dark, double dark chocolate, 10 pound bags. Wow, that's a lot of dark chocolate. Uh, what else do we have here? I'm just going down the list. Somebody's growing some weed. We got General Hydroponics Flora Micro Fertilizer. Nice. Spark it up. Uh, somebody bought 
an All-American 21-and-a-half-quart pressure cooker. Nice. Get 18 bucks. 18 bucks goes to the podcast just because they clicked on the Amazon link on my website before they made that purchase. It's like leaving money in the street. It's really cool when you do that. So thank you very much for uh, everybody who's going through Amazon. It's Christmas time. Hey, a lot of uh, people are buying shirts now, too. Suddenly, I don't even think I've really mentioned the shirts very much, but suddenly there's a big upsurge in people ordering shirts from my website, chrisryanphd.com. Mom is sending me her monthly report, and she just said, like, there's been a big uptick in shirt orders. So thank you for everybody keeping mom busy. A little family business going there. Um and I've got something for you. Uh, I, I've got, I, so I just got a new phone uh, because I wanted one of these Nexus Google phones so that I can, when I'm traveling around the world, because we're going to be in Southeast Asia soon, and um, you can, it's like unlocked and it works around the world. So I got this new Nexus phone, but I've got a Samsung Galaxy S4 in absolutely pristine condition and a 64 uh, gigabyte SD card that I added to it and an extra battery and a case and I don't know what to do with it. So I was going to sell it on Craigslist or whatever, but uh, I thought I'd offer it to you guys. So if somebody out there needs a phone, uh, wants a phone, and it's a beautiful phone. It's got a great camera and everything. It's, you know, you can Google it. You know what it is. It's an Android phone. It's not an iPhone. Uh, it's Android. I like it better than the iPhone, honestly. But um, anyway, yeah, I guess I'll send it to somebody. So if you want the phone uh, and it's something you need, you would use it. You know, I would ask if you got a shit shitload of money you know you you already have a phone you can buy a phone so this this offer is more for people who don't have much money listen to the podcasts you know part of the community if i can give you something i'll send it to you in the u.s please only only u.s because i don't want to get into the weird custom shit and you know spending 50 bucks to send it to you in finland or something um it was used on the by ting i had the account with ting uh, which is on the Sprint line, but apparently it's been unlocked. I asked Ting to unlock it before I canceled my account there. So it should be unlocked, um, but if not, uh, it's it's definitely open on the Sprint network. So if somebody out there wants the phone, um, you can contact me through Twitter, through my website. There's a contact link. And I assume I'll get more than one person who wants it, so we'll just randomly you know, choose from, from I'll wait a, a few days and then I'll just randomly choose. Okay. What else do I have to talk to you about? I'm going to play some music. I'm instead of packing it all up at the front here, I'm going to, um, sort of intersperse it through the conversation with Lois. Um, people have been asking me to play more music from my magic file. I, I mentioned a few episodes back that, uh, there's, um, a file of songs that feel that they contain some sort of magical energy for me. And, um, you know, and what I mean by that is that it's beyond just good music. 
You know, like you can listen to, you know, Satisfaction or, uh, you know, some Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, rock and roll song. And it's like, that's good fucking music. And you feel it and you want to move and it gives you that energy. But then there's there's music that for me feels like it's leaking in from another dimension. There's some there's something there that's beyond just a good collection of notes or melody or there's you know that what's the greater than the sum of its parts there's some additional quality that makes me feel that it uh that there's some bridge to another reality uh provided by the music some some magical component to it so i've just um over the years, I've I've just taken songs and pieces of music like that and put it in a file that uh, I call Magic in my iTunes uh, collection. So I'll just play a few songs from that. Um, one is a song called Tajabon, T-A-G-A-B-O-N-E, and it's by Ismael Lo, who is African. I'm not sure. He may be from Senegal, but I'm not sure. Um and I first heard that in um soundtrack of a film by uh the great Spanish director whose name I can't remember, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, uh Pedro Amadovar, uh great, great director. Anyway, so I'll play that and then I will play uh I don't know how to pronounce any of this. Um, de Usuaya a la Quiaca, or something like that, which is from the soundtrack of another uh, great movie, uh, The Motorcycle Diaries. Um, and the music's by Gustavo Santa Olala. Um, it's just a short acoustic piece. And then uh, at the end of the, the conversation, I will play a beautiful song called. Y W E I, or maybe it's Way. I think he says Way, and that's by Papa Wimba, who is a Congolese musician. Um, he's uh, one of the most popular musicians in Africa. He's sort of like the James Brown of Africa. He's just got this amazing voice, and it's a uh, it's a very beautiful transporting song and i'll also put um videos of them on my site chrisryanphd.com and uh that's about it i hope you enjoy this conversation with lois and uh things are going to get chaotic around here cuz we're going to be moving i think i might record one more podcast intro from my desk here where i'm sitting and then it's going to all be on the road um, different mics, and uh, I hope the sound quality will sound, will stay uh, as good as it's been. But uh, please bear with me. You know, you're going to be traveling with me, so there might be a little bit of sacrifice in terms of the regularity and maybe the sound quality occasionally. But I'll try to find a quiet place to do these intros. Anyway, uh, thank you. Oh, wait a minute. I, there was a poem. Somebody sent me a poem. Uh, Doug. Thank you, Doug. Um, a lot of people have been very positive about the the poetry that I've uh, been reading. So I thought I would um, read a poem that somebody sent me. Uh, it's called Love After Love, and it's by the poet Derek Walcott. 
um, who's actually quite well known. I think he won a Nobel Prize uh, in a few years ago. Anyway, this is uh, it's a beautiful poem, and and I think it's relevant to the concerns of uh, of a lot of people who listen to this podcast. The so it's called Love After Love by Derek Walcott. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. All right. So I am here on Star Island, New Hampshire, with Lois Ames. Uh, I've met a lot of very interesting people here. And uh, actually, this is funny. This is sort of, in some ways, a flying blind interview because you and I haven't spoken a lot about what you do and who you are, but Casilda was lucky enough to get to hang out with you, and she came back and she said, you have to get Lois on your podcast. So uh, here you are. Welcome. Thank you. It's going to be fun. <laughs> We're sitting in the... Where, where are we? We're in the it's pink parlor? The pink parlor. The pink parlor. And this is an almost 200-year-old building, I believe. Wow. Yeah, this is a very interesting place. Uh, in the intro, I spoke a bit about Star Island. And actually, I said that in the past tense because by the time people hear this, I will have spoken about yes. it in the intro that I haven't yet recorded yet. Um, but uh, how long have you been coming here? I came first when I was 13, and it was right at the end of World War II. And I came uh, to a, with a liberal religious youth group. Uh, the group was here on the island, and I came to be part of it. And it was the first time I had really been on my own, alone, in an adult setting. There were no other adults there except the people who were running the conference. Mm. I believe that conference still is continuing. Right. Was this a, a sort of a religious retreat island at that point? This was only a Unitarian uh, because the Unitarians and Universalists had not yet got joined together oh, okay. as a, a single organization. But it was already owned by the Unitarian, Unitarian Church. and had mm. been for a long time. Oh, really? Yeah. So it goes back right. that far. It goes back a long time. Interesting. Were you raised as a Unitarian? I was, in fact, born a seventh-generation Unitarian on my mother's side. Wow. And my father abandoned his faith in order to marry my mother, and he was a Universalist. Really? And yeah. now they're joined. <laughs> and Well, he worked hard to get them. Oh, he was part he of worked, that. He um, was part of the people. He worked very... He was a volunteer in many capacities in the um, uh, Unitarian Association. And he, uh, at one point, was on the board of trustees of Star King the Theological School in Berkeley, California. Uh-huh. And... Uh, 
he was on a service committee when it was first, Unitarian Service Committee, which was first formed before we entered the war, World War II, um, to try to bring Jews out of Germany, and it was done very successfully uh, by a ministerial couple. Uh, the husband, the minister was Waskel Sharp, and his wife was Martha, and they managed to get children out of Germany. Children? Children. Without their parents? Yes. Wow. On a, a train that went to England, actually. And it, 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 I would hear these things at the dinner table at night. My father would be telling my mother, and of course I was curious, yeah. um, that the Sharps left their own children in Wellesley, Massachusetts to go out to save children in Europe. No kidding. Mm -hmm. So you were 13 at the end of World War II. So right. do you remember the war quite? Do you remember it as part of your childhood? I do, yeah. because I grew up outside of Boston in Arlington, Massachusetts, which is contiguous to Cambridge yeah. and Lexington. And I was very aware of it. I, I gathered tin, aluminum foil and tin foil yeah. from pack, cigarette packages and made them in big balls. I now realize that many of the things I did were directed as a uh, an attempt to mobilize the citizenry and uh, get the citizenry to support the war. But right. of course, I only knew it later when I heard, learned about the uh, great attempts to keep the country out of the war because it was always a hmm. patriotic gesture for my for my part. Right. So maybe they weren't actually so interested in the tin, they were interested in you participating. Or, or this or saving fat. Oh <laughs> we right. had to save fat. My my father also in serving on the Unitarian Service Committee, which was like the Quaker Service Committee, uh not only were they interested in bringing back refugees, but one night my father came home and said, well, we cabled Albert Schweitzer, and Schweitzer had left a very successful medical practice in um, Switzerland and gone into the depths of darkest Africa that nobody really understood in those days where darkest Africa was. Not many people have been there. And to to work as a missionary and cure people of mm -hmm. leprosy and other diseases was very successful. And he was considered a, a very saintly man by the American population in general. So the Unitarian Service Committee members sent him a cable saying, you're a Unitarian and you don't know it. Yeah. And he sent back a cable saying... You can have me if you want me. And since then, in all their publicity, they name Albert Schweitzer. Oh, really? <laughs> As a, a prominent Unitarian. That's, that's great. That's funny. I, I like religions that have uh, a low bar to entry. I think that's a very, that's a sign of a good religion. Uh, you know, sometimes when I'm talking about Buddhism and people ask me why I... I relate to Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I'm not a Buddhist, but 
I love the fact that anyone can say I'm a Buddhist and nobody cares. There's no initiation. Yeah, there, there's something beautiful about that sort of welcoming ease with the labeling. Yeah. Um, now, one of the things Cassie told me is that you're a poet. I am. Have you been a poet uh, your whole life? My entire life, since I was six. Since you were six, so yes, you were already I, writing. Right, yes, yeah. I was, yes. And what, what is it? Did you read a poem that moved you, or is there just a way that words dance in your head that you like to capture? That's wonderful, dance in your head. Um, Maybe I'm a poet, too. I'm sure you probably (laughs) are, Chris. I really am sure you are. Um, I think it's that I loved images, and I loved putting down thoughts and putting them into an order that an order that would mm-hmm. convey something to other people. Now I'm talking as an 83-year-old about a 6-year-old mind, but I think that was it. I remember reading, um, oh, what's her name? I can't think of her name right now, uh, but a, a woman, Sarah Teasdale. Mm. She was very, very prominent in those days, or rather saccharine poet from our view now, but she was the kind that a six-year-old girl would love. And I kept composing because we went to the seashore in the summer. I composed poems about the sea. Mm -hmm. And then, and and I just kept on writing. I wrote short stories and never tried a novel, not really interested, but Short stories and poetry and many essays. Mm. Yeah, I love short stories yeah. and essays. I think yeah. those are my two favorite, uh, what will we, we even call them, formats or, or ways to collect thoughts. And uh, Flannery O'Connor is just so amazing. She is. Yeah, yeah I loved her work. And, and actually for years all I read was short stories. I, I, in college, I read a lot of poetry and uh, and short stories. I love the the density and the sort of the power, you right. know, and how every there's no no waste, no fat, no meandering around. It's just all beautiful and potent. It's so great. Yeah. Peter Davison, the poet, once asked me why I chose poetry, and I said, "Well, you know, it's so portable." Mm. You can carry it with you, yeah. your own and other people's poems. You can't really carry a short story with you. Yeah, that's a good point. Or an essay, but a poem you really can memorize. And So carry. maybe poetry is the only writing form that still holds that oral tradition, the memory, mm-hmm. and the, it's still the most alive in a sense. And rhythm is that's important. True. You have to read it right. to really get it. Read it out loud, That's I mean, right. you have to hear it. And although we did that in school, in grammar school, that was not something that poets did as I was growing up. Hmm. I can remember um, Sosa, uh, 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 what's his name? I'll get back to that in a moment. Yeah. The, a Russian poet um, who came to the University of Chicago, and I was there, and I heard him declare, declaim aloud mm. all of his portraits, all of his poems. And it was so powerful. I'd never heard that before. Later, he was famous for 
reciting poetry in Russia to entire football stadiums mm. of people. And then that caught on in our country, and uh, Ginsburg was a very good example of somebody that brought that oral tradition. Mm. And by the 1960s and 70s, uh, it was a powerful, and partly because people declaimed against the Vietnam War, yeah. it was a powerful way to spread messages. Yeah. I saw Amiri Baraka um, speak when I was in college, mm-hmm. and he, I, I think it was a, about war. I don't remember if, if it was about the Vietnam War or, mm-hmm. or um, Central America, because this was in the early 80s mm-hmm. and the, you know, the Contras and the Sandinistas sure. and all that. But it was the first time I was ever moved to tears by someone just standing and speaking. It was incredible. It was a performance. Of, it was very intense. Yeah, very interesting. Interesting how, like so many other things in the modern age, there's so much more of it and it's so much less powerful. You know, we're surrounded by language, by by mm-hmm. jingles, and uh, you know, everywhere you look is printed. You know, the printed word is everywhere. But it seems, you know, Twitter and Facebook and blah 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 everywhere. But it's this whole quantity versus quality dynamic mm-hmm. that keeps playing out. Or at least that's the way I'm framing it in my mind. It seems. So you you let's get from thirteen. You're thirteen on Star Island. You've been coming here ever since then. No, no, no. I never came again until ten years ago. Oh, when I I got a a telephone call from my son-in-law. Uh, he was married to my daughter and had um, a four-year-old son. Yeah, and they he had come here from the time he was an infant and swat, literally in swaddling clothes and then he uh, uh, was a pelican and then served in many capacities for Star Island yeah. so he called, he and my daughter and the fairly new grandson went to be a family as his father and mother had taken him uh, to be a family on Star Island and he called me in midweek and said Lois we want you to come it's wonderful here and we want you to enjoy it and I said I'll be right there I canceled every appointment I had really? yes and I got the next boat and I was here for half a week and it was a remarkably marvelous uh, Experience because he had just been made vice president of the Metropolitan Museum mm-hmm. with the promise that the sky was the limit. Not There were no glass ceilings for him. The inference meant for him to take was that he would eventually be president of the museum. And he also was a talented jazz pianist and had that summer gone to Stanford for a, apparently a very sought-after jazz workshop. Mm-hmm. And he had 
played there for a week and had a marvelous time. Yeah. So we wanted to get back to music here on the island and determined, he told me when I arrived, he was only taking his son to and from the groups that their children were put in in the morning and the afternoon so that they could get a really wonderful experience and so that their parents would be free to do their own pursuits. Yeah. And he would come to three meals. Other than that, he was going to devote himself to music. So he played out here on the porch at lunchtime and at the Starlight Cafe. And he um, you know, played with anyone that would play with him. Yeah. And he was constantly trying to get better. So we were sitting under a tree and he was saying to me, you know, I'm really sorry. I got a degree in economics in college and I went on to get an MBA in arts administration and immediately got put on the board of trustees of this new arts administration uh, MBA at the University of Wisconsin where he'd gone. He said, you know, I just wish I hadn't done all that. I wish I just pursued my heart, which was jazz. And mm. I could have done it now. I know I could have done it. And mm. It's too late. I'm 49 and it's too late. Well, I kept saying, no, it's not too late. And <clears throat> he said, oh, by the way, I have this pain in my back. And I said, well, when you get back to New York, go to a chiropractor. That was on August 27th. And a month later, he uh, was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer in both lungs, all of his ribs, his sternum, his pelvis. And by October 12th, he had five lesions in his brain and uh, worked at the museum until December 22nd and died on January 7th. And it was an incredible blow to us as a family, naturally to my daughter, you know, her beloved husband, to this little boy who just was barely starting out in life. Yeah. And um, so we vowed we would come back ever since. Mm -hmm. And we have for the last 10 years and will forever. Yeah. And bring other people. You know, our, our thing is to share this with... I have two places that are sacred to me that I share with only with people I like. Star Island and, and I have a cottage in the dunes in, in South Wellfleet, Massachusetts. And I inherited that from a man I loved very, very deeply that uh, died of stomach cancer. Mm. And uh, that was some years before uh, Jeff died. So that's a place I share with few people, too, yeah. for the same reasons. Yeah. But they have the same wonderful constituents of salt air and salt <laughs> sea yeah. and uh, just a happy, marvelous atmosphere. It's lovely that you've taken two places that could be associated with the deepest sadnesses of your life and you see them as places of joy. I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that quick analysis. Well, <laughs> I hope I didn't take the fun out of it for you. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Make it more fun. Yeah, oh, that's wonderful. 
Um, did you study um, literature at Chicago? I did. I, I went to Smith College. Oh, Smith. And, yeah, I went. My uh-huh. grandmother was in the third class at Smith in really? the class of 81, 1881. 1881. And my mother was 20, the class of 1921, and I was the class of 1952. Did your daughter go there? She absolutely rebelled. She's <laughs> mad her. She's red hair. She rebels at everything. Uh-huh. And about 10 or 15 years later, after she did go to college, and she did a brilliant job in, in the path she chose, uh-huh. uh, she said, oh, I, I, I realize now, I wish I had consciousness. Uh, yes. Too late. Too, Too late. late. So tell me again when you were at Smith College. I went. I graduated in 52. I was 52. between 48 and 52. Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting time. So that's an all-girls school, all-women's school. Well, it was girls at that yeah. time. <laughs> you could call, call them girls in those girls, days. Yeah. yeah, it's in Amherst, right? Northampton. Seven miles from Amherst. Right, the yeah. Seven Sisters. There's yes. a consortium of small right. colleges around right. there. Yeah. Of, no, of female colleges. Oh, that's why they're oh, the sisters. Yeah, Moore, oh. uh, Vassar, Wellesley, Mount Holyoke, oh. Smith, now, which is the seventh. Uh, in New, uh, in in New York, it's, uh, oh. I think it's Sarah Lawrence. Sarah Lawrence. Yeah. Oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Interesting place to to study. Very um, strong academic intellectual tradition. Yeah. And you studied literature, poetry. I, I, I studied English. English yeah. literature. English. And did you focus on particular authors or periods or? Well, it was a, it was much was a, were assigned courses. We could mm. elect courses, but. We had, you know, Yeats and Shelley and mm. uh, uh, Eliot and the obvious people, uh, Chaucer. Yeah. I mean, we did go do Middle English and right. uh, Early English and yeah. uh, then up into the 1950s. Did you read uh, Randall Jarrell at all? Do you remember you him? Know, that's funny. I, did, I met him once. Um, no, he was too. I, I don't think he maybe was even publishing to the point where I would have seen any hmm. of his work uh, in the 1950s. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't. He was publishing criticism, I think, then more than his was. own poetry. Okay. Yeah. He no. sort of brought Walt Whitman back into public oh, okay. consciousness. Well, then you see, you know much more about it than I do. Well, I, you, I've never met him. Uh, he died in 61, yeah, I think, he did. in suspicious yeah. circumstances. Yes. But I wrote my junior thesis about him. Oh. I, I've read everything he ever published. Oh, yeah. he was a lovely man. Yeah. He came, I, I was at the College of William and Mary. In, I wasn't at the college. My husband was there as the first architect since Sir Christopher Wren. Mm. And, um, he, and so we were invited to a man, many interesting things because yeah. we were associated with the arts, so to speak. And uh, we were invited to a very small cocktail party, maybe seven, ten people, because Jerome was getting a Phi Beta Kappa key from the um, Phi Beta Kappa Society at William & Mary, which was the oldest one. Mm. Harvard has the next oldest, but right. William & Mary had the oldest one. Right. And um, so there was a cocktail party, and then, then there was going to be a dinner. And I walked into this party, and I was a new um, 
very green faculty wife, and I had just been taken in hand by the head of the English department's wife, who had seen me in not very good circumstances at the president's party a few weeks before, um, being very inept socially about how I conducted myself. <laughs> And Did she, she get drunk and belligerent? No, no, I just no. I was too shy, and I was just oh, diffident, and uh, I, you know, would drop conversations. Although I didn't in the rest of my life, it was very intimidating <laughs> to be in these Christopher Wren buildings, and the president of the college was an admiral, uh, <laughs> and so I, this woman took me in hand. She came over and she shot her hand out to me and said. My dear, who are you? <laughs> said Lois Haynes. And she said, oh, the new architect's wife. And I said, yes. And she said, well, you're scared, aren't you? You're frightened. And I said, well, yes. And she said, well, you, you have no time to be frightened here. You have a job to do. Mm -hmm. This is a large party. And Mrs. Chandler is putting this on for the Admiral, and you are expected to do your part to help your hostess. So I want you to pick the loneliest looking person in the room and go over and stick out your hand and say, I am Lois Ames, and uh, how do you come to be here at this party, and what is your name? Oh, <laughs> really? And I've done that ever since. Uh, so I had learned a few things. When the Jarrell party came up, <clears throat> I walked in, and all these old gray beards, the heads of the English department and mm -hmm. the sociology department and their wives, were all gathered in frightened little groups. And there was this man sitting in the corner, and I thought, oh, poor soul, who could he be? All by himself. I better go introduce myself to him. So I went over, didn't do what she had told me to do. I just said, hello, I'm Lois Ames, and, uh, you know, and we started talking about something. And he and I talked and talked and talked until they had to drag us away to go to the dinner party, and the hostess said, well, Mr. Durrell, it's time to leave. Now you have to stop talking with Mrs. Ames and come to dinner. I said, are you Randall Durrell? <laughs> and my mouth dropped open. Wow. And I That's just said, great. oh. And um, I'm so sorry that I monopolized your time. And he said, oh, I'm so glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he was dead, you know, mm. a few years later. And you're right. It was un under very suspicious circumstances.
I have a friend of uh, Anne Sexton, the poet, yeah. about whom I've written a lot of book and many essays. Mm. And she, when I got to know her a few years later, she kept moaning because she was sure that Randall Jarrell had probably killed himself because Anne was fixated on suicide, had tried suicide many times, and was to end her life by suicide. And she said, I wanted to write him a fan letter, but I never dared. And I remembered how I didn't dare at that cocktail party at the president's house and how I did, and that's how I talked to him. 
and I said, well, you, you, the next person that you feel this way about, you must write them, and I'll push you to do that. Because people love to get into, of course, she was getting fan letters, so she knew. But anyway, yeah. he, he was a charming man. He was. I, <clears throat> one of the few poems I ever committed to memory was his last. It's called A Riddle. Do you remember that one? Can you say it? What's the riddle they ask you when you're young and you say, I don't know, but someday you will know? The riddle they ask you when you're old and you say, I don't know, and that's the answer. I don't know. It's the last thing he ever published. It's a beautiful poem. Yeah, and it really makes you think it was suicide. Yes. You know, that's yeah. that's a suicide note, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. He, for people who don't know who he was, he was, um, he was, uh, in World War II, I think he was in the, the ball turret of the bombers, which is that little glass hemisphere that hung at the back bottom of the bomber that, uh, there was a machine gun in there and they would shoot at, uh, the fighter jets or fighter planes that came to attack the bomber because the bomber was too slow to get away. And it was a very vulnerable place because you're all alone down there and you're, everyone else is at the other end of the airplane. And, um, yeah, he, he had some harrowing missions in World War II. And then he came back and he got a job, I think, at uh, Sarah Lawrence, I think he taught it, at Woman's College in Kentucky or Tennessee somewhere. Mm. And um, he always wrote poetry and essays, but he wasn't particularly well known for them. He was well known for his literary criticism, which was uh, either extremely cutting and devastating if he didn't like your stuff or he would make your career and and just shower praise upon you if he did like it he was very generous uh, to people to writing that he loved and as I say he brought back uh, Whitman into the, the sort of canon of American poetry um, and I think he also was instrumental in getting D.H. Lawrence some uh, attention much needed respect at that time but anyway, he, uh, I think he had a lifelong issue with depression, and he was very uh, turned off by America and what he saw happening in American society in the 50s, the commercialism, the crass, superficial um, consumerism. Uh, he wrote uh, some great poetry, A Sad Heart at the Supermarket was one, a name of one of his collections. And... Um, yeah, and then he was out walking along a deserted uh, country road one night, and he was hit by a car, and uh, the the supposition was that he sort of jumped out in front of the car or, or stood at a blind turn or something. And So, anyway, that's Randall Jarrell. Uh, well worth checking out if anyone's interested in literary criticism of the 50s and uh, that sort of, you know, someone who saw coming a, a lot of ways what we're dealing with now, which I think is sort of the end of the consumerist era. 
It's funny. Do you feel, I mean, your perspective is so much larger and, and better informed than mine. Do you feel that we're at the end of something here? Are we at a crisis point or is that just... Oh, it's terrifying to me. Do you feel that? Yes. I mean, and you've lived through several wars. You've seen the nuclear fear in the 60s. And there, there's always something to be worried about. But does this feel unique to you in some way? Well, partly it feels unique because there's no sense of a, a united front hmm. of people joining together to examine, I don't even mean confront, just to examine. There are certainly people crying in the wilderness and sending up white flags and saying help, but um, there is nobody who's really... Well, I'm sure there are. I'm sure people are trying to, but there's no public outcry against the things that are just taking us closer and closer and closer to the brink. Yeah. I started to say labyrinth, because that's what I really feel, not the brink. It isn't a clean fall down into a chasm. It's more like wandering into a labyrinth and yeah is the black bull in that labyrinth yeah and will we confront that black bull and pull it out or will it pull us all in what were you doing in the 60s in the 60s I was living in um, Williamsburg, Virginia, initially, because that's where my um, husband worked. And then, uh, and my first child, Elizabeth, was born there. And I was very much involved in um, uh, Lamazian childbirth because it was something that had just come to this country and nobody really knew anything about it and I certainly didn't and uh, the first obstetrician came to Williamsburg that they had ever had and his wife was a physical therapist and uh, insisted that everybody take her courses if they were going to have him as a doctor otherwise you had to go 60 miles to Richmond and uh so I uh, went to consult this doctor when I thought I was pregnant, and he uh, confirmed it, and he gave me a book called Thank You, Dr. Lamaze, and, which was <clears throat> a tribute to the French uh, doctor, um, Lamaze, who had started the um, method that pretty much... Uh, uses a kind of hypnotherapy, actually, to mm. you hypnotize yourself, although nobody ever has called it that. Yeah. You do exercises, and your husband helps you with the exercises, and a particular kind of breathing gets you through. So I, I brought the book home. My husband read it and said, you're going to do this, and I'm going to help you. And we were one of the first people in town who did use that method. And we were obnoxious, and my husband would buttonhole pregnant women at our cocktail parties. And we had a lot of cocktail parties in Williamsburg. And he'd say, 
we're going to show you how to do the Lamaze method so that you can have... Put on your drink. But as a matter of fact, I had 25 hours of labor and only the last in the uh, hospital that had been carved out of a three-story house. And, uh, and I uh, got a... Uh, a, a practically pain-free. I only had four contractions that I could feel, and two were felt because I uh, was sleeping, and Mm -hmm. so I wasn't doing the breathing, and they caught me. And one was because somebody had dropped by to see me and kept saying, oh, poor Lois, oh, poor Lois, oh, oh. And when she left, my husband and I burst into laughter, (laughs) and (laughs) <laughs> that caught me. And then the last was, it was Saturday night when I finally had to get to the hospital. And we were in the middle of a cluster of fraternity houses, and it was Saturday night. And Elvis, first time I ever heard Elvis Presley on a record. Really? <laughs> Elvis gave you contractions. <laughs> and it turned out later that the, uh, the fraternity boys had all climbed on our woodpile and peeked in the window watching me do... My huffing and puffing. Really? <laughs> Fraternities were different in those days. Oh, huh? I guess so. Maybe they didn't know That's as much funny. about baby, babies as they thought they needed <laughs> to know. Right. Hey, boys, you want to see how babies are made? Maybe birth, good birth control that year. <laughs> That's funny. That's so really funny. anyway, that I was very involved in that, and I think that was the start of my getting very interested and involved in in the women's movement, you know uh-huh. that that freeing of my body, my taking the power mm. that had always been given over to medical doctors. I was able to have that because yeah. this is a medical doctor that showed me that I was having the baby, he wasn't, and he was just there. He said, "I'm just there to catch the baby." That's so. That's such a major difference, right? <clears throat> Between the doctor who takes the power from the patient and the doctor who tries to empower the patient. It is. Good. So we were talking about uh, the 60s and your your transition into the, the women's rights movement. Right, right. So you teach at Harvard or you've taught I, it? I did. I'm, I'm retired now, but I was the first social worker um, uh, appointed to the faculty of Harvard Medical School in the Department of Psychiatry. Really? And when was that? Oh, Lordy. Uh, it must, must have been in, in the late 70s, early 80s. I can't even remember mm. the date. Right. So long ago. And you'd been teaching there for a while previous to being no, appointed officially, no, or you came no, in? I was um, a consultant as a social worker to people on the faculty of the Department of Psychiatry in Cambridge Hospital. Uh, there were seven teaching hospitals affiliated with um, Harvard Medical School, and Cambridge Hospital is the only one that still teaches psychodynamic psychotherapy. Mm. Every other one is em- emphasizing um, medications. Right. And so, uh, this was a wonderful place to be uh, a consultant. And this was a voluntary position 
nobody had ever, uh, no social worker had ever been asked to do this before. And uh, there were six of us that were asked to submit our credentials and be screened, and then three of us were appointed. Mm -hmm. I was the first one of the three that were appointed. And so, so, so you, you were teaching well, medical you go, doctors? Well, we go into uh -huh. uh, the hospital and consult with whomever needed it. I was asked often to commit or to uh, consult with um, administrators, but also you could be consulting with the doctors uh, in the hospital or the uh, psychologists or the when I say the doctors, I mean the psychiatrists, yeah. or the uh, social workers, or the psychiatric nurses. Mm. Or you could be consulting with residents or interns. Now, in all the professions that go up to make a psychiatric medical community. Right. Okay, last we heard, you were studying poetry. Right. And now suddenly you're teaching in Harvard Medical School <laughs> as a social worker. Where, where did that happen? What, what, what happened was that I, after I graduated from Smith, I'll try to make this brief. <laughs> I know it's hard to condense an 80-plus year life into uh, an hour with children rolling right. around on the floor. Yeah. But I, I um, went back to Arizona uh, where my parents lived. They had a ranch in, um, outside of Tucson. And um, I worked on the evening paper. And I was actually given a column, which was called Vocational Leapfrog. And, the, and I now realize that in 1952, this was a golden apple. I had mm. no idea what I was given because... It was called Vocational Leapfrog because I was expected for the women's pages to interview women either living in Tucson or visiting, and of course we have a large culture of winter visitors, um, who were uh, had interesting careers. So each week I'd write about a woman with an interesting career, a woman who owned her own mortuary, the only mortuary in Tucson. She had inherited from her husband who died and they had been in business together and she carried it on. And But in 1952, this was incredibly mm. unusual for a woman to be earning a living and have a profession. And then that person would say, well, if I weren't the owner of a mortuary, I'd like to be so-and-so who's a professor of anthropology at the university. And so I'd go and introduce, interview that person. And they asked, and then if they couldn't think of anyone they would like to be, I always had a basket full of people that I could suggest. So we leaped from one. It was very interesting because I leaped around many professions. That's a great technique because you've got your next assignment built into the last assignment. That's right. Yeah. And really um, so that went on for a while, but then I <laughs> I heard through I was going to a writing class at the University of Arizona and I uh, met a man in the writing class 
and we fell in love and began an affair and it was my first affair um, and I um, of course was starry-eyed and I had this wonderful job and then one of the, then we met another man who was teaching or no he was a teaching fellow and getting his master's in English at the university and he was from New York so the three of us were sort of pals and did things about writing together. And um, then we heard that James Jones was spending the winter in Tucson, living out in the desert in a trailer. So we tracked him down and we went out to interview him, just to meet him, not to for any commercial reason whatsoever. And remind us who James Jones was? Well, James Jones was famous at that time for a bestseller called From Here to Eternity, oh, yeah. which was about a um, soldier prior to the beginning of World War II in the late 30s who was in the army, and it was a story of his life and yeah. his struggles. Played by Frank Sinatra in the movie? No, Frank Sinatra was... In that movie, but not, but not in. It, he wasn't the leader of the, the lead actor. Yeah. I haven't got the foggiest idea now who the lead yeah, actor was. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's a movie. famous yeah. beach scene where yeah. the couple make love. They're on the rolling beach. around That's and the right. waves are coming yes, in over yes, them. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember the names of any of the actors in that. Uh, I think it was an English actress who was the woman who, I can't yeah. anyway. I'm just losing those things. Yeah. Anyway, he was, he was the hot, famous writer of the day. Yeah. And he was associated with a woman named Loney Handy, whose husband had oil wells in Oklahoma. And I think it was Oklahoma, but it was also Kansas. And he, um, and he had given his wife enough money so that she founded a writer's colony in Kansas, in rural Kansas. And the idea was that she thought that you learned how to write by copying other famous writers, uh -huh. literally copying them, typing all day long their manuscripts. Right. And there were huge articles in newspapers and magazines about it. Anyway, these two men got involved through Jones with Loney Handy, but Loney Handy didn't want anything to do with me. Uh huh. So you did go out and meet James Jones. We did go out to meet James Jones. Pals. And these two men finally went and joined her colony. And you weren't welcome. I was not welcome, but she would. She would. This is so ridiculous, it's embarrassing to tell about, but it's like any cult. Uh, she would, because she didn't want any women. Right. She didn't want any any females around. Uh -huh. And she would take the men once a month to a whorehouse in the big city. And that's the only contact they could have with women. I mean, when I think about it, it's astounding. We bought this whole thing. I didn't because I was so appalled when I heard about the whorehouse. Needless to say, because this man I loved, but and I, I never asked if he partook of the goodies. I mean, I, 
But anyway, it's part of the education. but she Roni agreed to have me type. At type, uh -huh. uh, like secretarial know. position in the cult. No, no, just to learn to to write uh -huh. by typing out, you know, her Ernest Hemingway short stories, and mm. nausea. And of course, my parents were appalled at what I'd gotten myself into, and I resigned from the newspaper and from this wonderful job that I realize I had now because to do, you know, this is I was going to become the great writer this way because Joan said. And was it Hemingway that you were typing? She gave me the mind, she gave me the assignment, you couldn't choose. The hills like white elephants? <laughs> did you ever, did you ever type the short happy life of Francis McComber? Yeah, you did. Do you I certainly that did. <laughs> the, in, the, in the snows of Kilimanjaro. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, oh. And <laughs> grew to hate Hemingway. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll and bet. Also, but I mean, I think it did something for me as far as seeing through Hemingway. Yeah. You know, that was the cult of the times was Hemingway, too. Yeah. So anyway, that what finally... He was a windbag, wasn't what he? What finally happened was this man that I loved dearly, his name was David... Um, had gone to the University of Chicago as one of Robert Hutchins, the president's, uh, selected high school kids to take part in a program in which kids went as young as 13 to the University mm. of Chicago and got an education. And he had been chosen. So he had gone out of a small town in Oklahoma to um, be this and, uh, of course, he'd met many other people. And those people, um, some, of, some of his friends, they'd all graduated at 15 and 16 from the University of Chicago uh, on this program. And so his best friends had, were appalled at hearing what, that he was stuck in what they saw was a cult. Mm -hmm. And so they hitchhiked out to... Kansas and captured him, abducted him. <laughs> really? It was one of the early cult-breaking things. <laughs> That's hilarious. And, and got, took him back to the city. So and they took him back, but you're still there with the other I'm guy? I'm back. I'm in, I'm in, well, no, the other guy, I, you know, was finishing his graduate school, and I, he was gay, and so he and I didn't have much in common anyway. So, uh, you know, we remained friends. Was he openly gay? Uh, he was openly gay with me. I oh. don't know how openly gay he was with other people. He was openly gay with David. I don't know how. I mean, we all just knew he was gay. And, of course, we called it homosexual in those yeah. days because the word gay didn't exist. Yeah. Or it meant happy. Yes. Or happy and gay right, and right, you know, right. lighthearted. Light right. So, anyway, the result of all this was... David went to New York, and I left the, the ranch and my family and went to New York to make our fortune writing somehow. And <laughs> eventually, the New York experience turned out to be a little more difficult than we thought it would be. Who's ever heard that story before? Yeah. So, so you it. showed up broke. And this is what year? Oh, this must have been about 19... 
53. Ooh, 53, yeah. show up in New York. And a very, uh, you know, that was a very rigid time. Yeah. And lying to my parents about, because... You, you know, weren't married. Oh, no. Yeah, this was your first affair ever, you Yes, and they first. supposedly didn't know it. Of course they did, yeah. you know. Of course <laughs> they did. <laughs> anyway, eventually we got engaged, but that was later. But, um... Anyway, he he just he Chicago was really his home. It was a mm -hmm. place where he had found himself and intellectually and a group of people he was compatible with. So we made our way to Chicago. And uh, and my parents had friends in Chicago whom I knew. So we'd get settled down there and I went and lived with her family and was there uh, um, what we would now call au pair. I mm. lived there for instance room board and took care of their job. And uh, I don't have time now, but every one of these characters that I'm not mentioning, it turned out to be very famous people. The, big, the family I lived with, the, the guys, one of the guys who saved David was later on the $64,000 question. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, it's just an invented a game, an early intellectual game in which he became a multimillionaire. Every one of these names, I'm just, That's funny. Not, I can't fill it all in. But anyway, and uh, and the in the family I lived with, the, the husband became very famous in many ways. And uh, one of the things was he was treasurer of the Democratic Party mm -hmm. and was bugged at Watergate. And I mean, we may remain close friends until he died, and uh, so. And but that's years later. You see, that's whole right. lives later.
So what happened? But I'm just I'm not talking about ordinary people. All these people, exceptional people. Yeah. They, they, demystified David, caught, talked him out of this craziness, and said if he was going to be a writer, he just should be sitting down and writing. So um, he went to the. Well, we we had no money, so the three of us. Another threesome, and this man that I said later uh, was on the sixty-four. Not the gay guy from no, before. The, he the, went off to. He's still his in thing. Arizona. Okay, right. And um, uh, the uh, the guy who de- demystified David was a guy named Barry Simmons, and he uh, heard from somebody that they were paying at the welfare. Department a huge amount, two hundred twenty-five a month. Well, to us that was a fortune, mm. and you didn't have to know anything. Oh, really? <laughs> so the three of us went down there. <laughs> I and they said, "You just listen to us. When we have our interviews, we'll talk loud, uh-huh. very loudly, so that you can <laughs> always works great in an interview. Shout." And so, and you'll get the point of how you reply. I mean, it's an English major. I didn't know anything about it, anything. So, so when my turn came, they said they liked what they saw, and they and I, after all, I was taking care of a child. Hmm. Do you, would you like adult welfare or a children's welfare? I said, well, where are they located? Children's welfare department was closer to Hyde Park, where the University of Chicago is, where we were living. So um, I said, I just love children. And so they said, we're signing you to the Children's Welfare Department. And I was getting $225 a month, and I had a paying job. And so I started working there. And I, and as did David, as did Spirit. Oh, you all got in, Egypt. even the shouters. Oh. oh. <laughs> they hire anyone. I, this, I mean, they were throwing around names I'd never heard of. Famous psychologists, but I, I, psychology at Smith, we didn't get anywhere close to Sigmund Freud. We were so far back in the Middle Ages of psychology oh, really? in that department. Oh. And so anyway, I, um, I was doing this work, and then I became appalled because I was deciding the lives of innocents who had no advocate except me. I didn't know a thing, and I put myself in the hands of these extraordinary foster mothers, most of them black, because this area I was assigned and where I was living was surrounded by three ghettos. And the fourth end of the box was Lake Michigan. So I just put myself in the hands of these foster mothers and listened mm. and listened and listened and listened to what they had to say. And they were so pleased to have somebody that didn't tell them what to do. Right. And I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And eventually a black psychiatrist who consulted to the department, who, um, his name was Walter Adams, took a great interest in me and thought I had potential and told me I needed to go to graduate school. So David went off to the English department at 
Pugliese and started or revived the Chicago Review along with Philip Roth. And I went to the uh, School of Social Service Administration mm-hmm. and uh, got a master's degree. And, and from then on, my career in social welfare and social work was launched. And mm-hmm. I went from place to place and uh, job to job in uh, wherever I was living. I met my husband. I married him. So in, David wasn't your husband. No, I never. We we got engaged, but that was, and there was a big uh, pictures in the paper in <laughs> Tucson because I had been their star reporter in, in Woman's Page, and then, um, you know, I broke up with him after two and a half years and had other boyfriends and. Was that because of something with David that wasn't right, or you just weren't ready to be married? No, no, no. There was something with him that was just wrong, and I knew it. And it was one of those extraordinary infatuations that, as the man sang sang last night, Mr. Ward, uh, did you hear that song last night? I I don't know. Oh, all right. Well, he, he introduced his song by saying, you should have one impossible love. Oh, or I'm sorry for you. It was from the Kaja Fall, I think? Yes. Right. I'm sorry for you. Yeah. If you haven't. Yeah. And then, and if you have had, I'm sorry I'm for sorry you. I'm sorry for you. Well, <laughs> yeah. This was, this was that my heartbreak one. Uh, because well, it was I your just, first I kept one. Yeah. pulling myself away from, well, I'd had other boyfriends, uh. you know, and other people I thought I was unlovely. But this was, you know, I was just so involved in this guy and mm. had sort of given up my own persona. Right. And so eventually I um, and we so anyway we I met a whole group of I met a group of intellectual Catholics. I didn't having been born and brought up in the Boston area, I honestly did not know that Roman Catholics could be bright. <laughs> It is so I tell this to you who were raised in the religion, yeah. but this is so appalling. And and to get along in the public schools on Ash Wednesday, I would steal my parents' matches. This is the only thing wrong I ever did as a child, <laughs> and burn them in the backyard and put them like For this. So when I went yeah. to school with ashes on my face, I would be like the other kids. Mm. And it's so. And my parents, every two years went to the uh, well first they worked every two years when the referendum came up for the birth, a birth control amendment and every two years they come home from the polls at the end of the day with their shoulders slumped and their heads down and they'd lost again on the birth control amendment and uh, because that Sunday in every church, Catholic church in the state, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the priest had gotten up and done what the cardinals did and what the bishops did and what um, the cardinal, is a very strong cardinal at that time in Boston, had preached. If you pull yes on that believer, or probably paper ballots at that point, you will go to hell right. and burn forever. Right. 
and for, so, for allowing people access to right. birth control. And yeah. I didn't have any realization, I didn't, that there was this vast, wonderful uh, body of literature that had come out of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have any idea that there were these great minds. And yeah. that you could read St. Augustine. And, you know, I mean, I, that all came later, yeah. learning about the saints and so forth. So, anyway, I, but I met this group of intellectual Catholics, and they started educating me, and I was stunned. <laughs> so this is now, what, the late this 50s? Is, this is the late 50s. Yeah. And... Um, so the Beatnik era, the Beats... That was just starting. Just I mean, starting. Some of those people I knew, Paul Cal was one of the early poets that was in that Beat um, group. And um, uh, I'm trying to think, well, I said it, Philip Roth. Uh, I can't Philip Roth was, what was his very famous book? Oh, goodbye, Columbus. Goodbye, Columbus. Yeah, he stole yeah. something from me. Oh, really? Yes, he did. And I'll never forgive him for it. Writers are thieves. <laughs> they are. They are. And he did <laughs> You've got to find their material somewhere. I, 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 what did he steal? Was it a well, character well, or a line? I had broken up with David, but I returned to our apartment to um, get from him the letters I'd written to him. Mm. And... Uh, give him the letters he had written to it's me. It's always a sad ritual. This kind of, and the party was going on, and, and Roth was there. And <laughs> he walked in on a party. Yes. Did you know the party was happening? No. No. Oh. And so anyway, that was. Oh. I didn't care about that. That's a and cinematic So I was moment. just. I came for these letters to get my hands on these letters, and then after I had them in my hands. And had his, of course, it was long before you could just put a piece of paper under a light and get a copy. Get a photocopy, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, Roth said to me, well, how can you give up all that, um, all that material that he wrote you? And I laughed and I said, you remember I had done all that typing all those years for Mrs. Handy. <laughs> I was a very fast typist. And I said, well, I copied them all. You'd already <laughs> transcribed the letters. <laughs> Is that true? It was. <laughs> it was. That's funny. And, and he burst out laughing. And of course, he immediately put it in Goodbye Columbus. I didn't know about it until the book was published. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> So anyway, from, yeah. from I got married and I, I moved around the country because my husband had jobs in different places. Uh -huh. And I and was he one of those intellectual Catholics? He was actually he was he was on the fringes of that. Hmm. It was a pretty large group of people. Right. Yeah, yeah. So and one of them I was madly in love with and would have married except he was a convert from Indiana. He was a Baptist background. And he was a convert, and he would not use birth control. And I couldn't couldn't be in love, and, and he kept saying, but if you get pregnant, I'll marry you. And I said, well, that's not 
the way I want to do it. Yeah. So I guess we have to, you know, not go any farther. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Was a lovely man, but oh. he, but and and then at one point, one of the other men I knew, um, who was another part of this fringe group, was um, uh, John uh, Chamberlain, who the iron sculptor, mm. and he was just he was just starting to move from being. A hairdresser in a very fancy salon in downtown Chicago to being an iron, you know, having his stuff at MoMA and (laughs) in Metropolitan all hilarious trajectory. Talk about a leapfrog! I know, and and he went. He a few years later went down to. um, This is before I got married. Went down to uh, uh, Black Mountain College to get a. no, to to just study with the great painters down there, and uh, he came up to rescue me. He came up to rescue me. He appeared on my doorstep one day, and said he wanted to take me down to Black Mountain because Charles Olson was down there, and he wanted he wanted me to study with Olson and the other poets that were at Black Mountain College. So all this time you're writing poetry while you're doing the social work and... That's been my life always. Absolutely parallel. Right. Writing and social work and doing therapy. Right. And actually, I sort of joke about it, but, you know, I I started by writing little tiny poems on little pieces of paper about the sea in Mattapoisa, which is where we went summers. And then... I took on people's problems, mm-hmm. and people were always asking me for advice. And a girl I knew that I visited a few times a year because our parents visited, who lived in Wellesley, Massachusetts, was having a great deal of trouble with her boyfriend because there was a girl in his class, but not hers, she was in a different class, who kept flirting with him and sending him letters, and she was very beautiful. She had black hair and blue-green Caribbean eyes, and she would steal him away. And so I, she'd tell me about this, and we'd consult about it. You know, we were 10, 12, 13, and I'd give her advice on what to do, and she'd get Jack back. <laughs> and then the next time we were pulled together because of our parents, she'd have another crisis, and I'd tell her what to do. Well, this girl, Anne Harvey, who uh, was the uh, wonderful um, sylph that was pulling, Jack Lovewell was the boy's name, (laughs) was pulling him away from Mana. Um, Years later, I met her because I was doing research on a book about it was Sylvia Plath, and Sylvia had just killed herself, and I had known her um, in high school and college briefly, just briefly. We would go back and forth on the bus together to college and little things like that, and I had once assured her fervently that she would uh, be a famous poet, which is what she wanted to be. She wanted to be a famous poet, and she certainly has achieved that. And um, so uh, I, was, I went to visit Anne because 
she had written a poem called Sylvia's Death. In Sylvia's style, Anne had written a eulogy mm. to Sylvia, saying, essentially, you stole the death I wanted, the, the suicide I wanted to have now. You know, you're going to make yourself famous by your suicide. I'm furious with it. Because she had known Sylvia, not in high school, but in... Um, Robert Lowell's poetry class. Uh -huh. It's a well-documented. Right. Uh, Let me ask you a question. You've mentioned three different female poets mm -hmm. from your circle who all either killed themselves or were fascinated with suicide. Was this... Um, who was it? Third. Well, there was Anne Sexton, there was Sylvia Plath, and this woman who wrote, like, you killed yourself as I was going to, and you, you know, oh, you no, stole Oh, no, that's Anne. That's uh, Anne writing this. Oh, that is, that's, that's Anne. It's her, it's her poem to Sylvia. To Sylvia. Called Sylvia's Death, that is written in Sylvia's style. Ah, okay. She took okay. on Sylvia's persona. Right. It's not one of her great poems, but it's one of her very interesting ones. Because she was able to take on, in her work, other people's personas mm. and do a magnificent job of using their voices. Right. Was yeah. there? But go on with your. Well, well, I guess the was there something in the culture of literature of women in literature? Because I know there weren't a lot of women. Uh, it was very hard for women in right. the fifties to, to get hard. any sort of attention. Terribly hard. Yeah, and I think Randall Durrell, actually, if I remember correctly, was pretty, um, he was a big supporter of women in literature. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, and he taught no. at a, a girl, right. women's college. Right. Um, but, I, I, you know, I'm wondering if there's some self-destructive element, or if that's just a, a contextual thing, the, the, the oppression of the 50s of women trying, or if there's something about... I don't know. I was just wondering if there's some connection between the activity or the culture and that sort of psychological trauma. Because well, you're looking at it, you're right. in it as a poet, right. but you're also a social worker and right. you're thinking psychologically right. and all that. And also as a friend. Yeah, I mean, right. I, I've never claimed a friendship with Sylvia. I knew her. Mm -hmm. I was two years ahead of her. Right. And so, you know, I knew her, but she wasn't. Anne and I were very close friends. Um, but, so I've ex obviously examined myself again and again yeah. because, uh, you know, why would I... The reason I took up Sylvia was that I thought at the time that she was not going... Nobody was going to remember her. Mm. We, Ted Hughes hadn't published the aerial poems yet and there the... New York Times and every other newspaper was on strike at the time that Sylvia killed herself in England. Oh. So news did not get back really? to this country for a long time. And Mrs. Plath tried to conceal that the death was a suicide. So she lied to all her friends. And and acquaintances and managed to cover it up and say that Sylvia had died of pneumonia because Sylvia had been ill with the flu and it was the worst winter in London mm. and uh, you know Sylvia was sick but she killed herself mm. there's no question and uh, the, the 
way the story broke was that Time magazine, I think it was about 18 months after Sylvia's death, broke the story that she had actually killed herself. Mm. And by that time, Ted had published the aerial poems, and there was some, and they had been, this is funny that it was Encounter, but it was an Encounter that he published these. And of course, now we know Encounter was the CIA front, but we didn't know that at the time. <laughs> yeah, I think the Paris Review was also a CIA front. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I remember, well, Peter Matheson uh, discussed this. Did you ever meet him? I never met him. I had friends that met him, but I never yeah, have. seemed like you, also, you would be in similar oh, circles. I would have loved to have met him, because he sounds like such a nice man. Well, from what I've heard, he wasn't a very nice man. Oh, wasn't he? No, no. but he was a very interesting man. Uh-huh. Um, but he was kind of brittle and opinionated and... Um, suffered from lifelong depression uh, yeah. and uh, was not very good socially. Uh-huh. Uh, someone here on Star Island met him who came up to me after the session today uh-huh. when I mentioned him and said that she she knew him or had met him. Um, she was in the same uh, Zendo as he was uh-huh. in, Lo- in Long Island, so uh-huh. she yeah. studied um, sure. Buddhism with him. Um, anyway, there, there was, I don't remember the details, but he... Uh, was either, I don't remember if it was knowingly or unknowingly that he was feeding information to the CIA. I believe it was knowingly. That Peter was? Yeah, yeah, in Uh the 50s. And um, that he was comfortable about it. And some of the money or, or something about the founding of the Paris Review was funded by the CIA and, the, you know... the. And who was the co-founder? Was I don't remember. It was another prominent intellectual. George Plimpton. Yeah, George Plimpton, exactly. And they had a big falling out over it later when Plimpton found out. And, oh. Yeah, but I, I don't remember the details. Yeah. I can't tell the story. No, I uh, didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, I think I read it in one of his obituaries. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, the CIA is... is sure. Like the NSA today, you never know where yeah. and, you know, yeah. who knows. Um so I was thinking about uh, the, the trend, trying to like follow the, the arc of your life through the 60s. So you were involved in the women's rights movement. Were right. you involved in the anti-war movement and all that, or were you well, into... Well, first I was uh, involved in civil rights before the anti-war, mm. and actually before the women's movement, um, except I was just citing the birth birth movement as the a Lamaze uh, stuff, yeah. the Lamaze movement yeah. as a, a yeah. path into right yeah you know, I can see all that. this um, but I I went to the march on Washington hmm. by that time I had two children Adam had been born in New York City and um, and I lived out on Long Island in Seacliff New York and much to the consternation of my parents in Arizona and um, Bob's parents in California, we went, were planning to go, and we had these very young children, and we had made proper provisions for them to be taken care of, both if we were killed. I mean, there was really this thought we might be killed. Yeah. And, and, uh, um, so, but we went, 
And that was one of the most, of the many things that have happened to me in my life, that was one of the greatest moments was to be on that march and to hear King um, give his speech and to be surrounded just by thousands and thousands and thousands of people, very underreported by the press at that time. And um, This was the I Have a Dream speech. Yes. Yeah. And, and you could hear him while he was giving it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was broadcast. People were quiet. Oh, everybody was absolutely still. Oh. And Jackie Robinson was sitting as close to me as I am to you. Really? He was sitting on the grass. We oh, were all sitting God. on the grass. And it was blazing hot sun. And nobody had enough water. We had brought hot tea because I'd read the people did that, Brits did that in the desert, and it worked, cool. yeah. it worked, yeah. and, um, but he was, he was suffering from, uh, he was sweating, and he was suffering from breathing, I always feared he might have had a heart attack, because he really looked ill, but it was a very informal, but very respectful group of people everywhere, I mean, we thought there were at least 100,000 people there. And, um, of course, that was not the way it was represented. And yeah. I was furious with the Kennedys because I had worked hard for Jack Kennedy uh, to be elected. And um, they'd all gone off to Hyannis. <laughs> the white boys are off sailing, yeah. yeah. There, was no, there was no even token representation. Really? Interesting. Yeah. So you, you mentioned the amazing things that you've experienced in yeah. life. What what other things would you put in that category? I mean, obviously having a, a child is, oh, is yes. pivotal. Yeah, that, the, the birth of both children were remarkable experiences. Um, I studied for a while with a... Um, Mexican psychiatrist named Salvador Roquette and he would come to Cambridge a few times a year and would give um, in-depth uh, workshops of three year, or days in which you would, he would try to <laughs> There's a herd of water buffalo walking through the room we're in. We're pretty lucky that we haven't had Yeah, a it's amazing. There are children running <laughs> wild all over this island. So sorry for the interruptions okay. out there. He, he, uh, he had uh, perfected a technique through using sound, enormous deprivation of sleep and food. And, I mean, there are many places that have done that since, but he was the first one I've known about. And um, a kind of religious archaeology, so <laughs> pulled in any, any, anything from any religion you wanted and he incorporated some mm. right into it. And the idea was that it would break down your psyche the way LSD did, because he was um, friends with professors at Harvard who had worked with LSD in the... Leary and... Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. And he... Um, and then, But it was now illegal, so he uh, just... 
tried to do by... To replicate the effects. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, so I, I worked with him, I mean, just as uh, going to these things four times a year and dealing in small workshops with the people. That was one of the great experiences of my life, mm. working with him and eventually going to Oaxaca, Mexico, ah. where he, we climbed literally seven mountains. And at the top, in a small, tiny village of coffee growers, they never drank, they never used their own coffee, mm -hmm. but they brought it all down on their backs, yeah. through the jungle, down to the town, and that's how they lived. And I don't know how he had met these people or anything, but um, there we got LSD. Uh, was it LSD or magic mushrooms? No, never. I've never had magic mushrooms. Because ah, that's no. where Maria Sabina was in the famous mushroom cults of uh, of Mexico. I didn't know that it was out of Oaxaca. Yeah, it's oh. the Oaxaca area. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, and so that was that was a wonderful experience for me. It was mm. an extraordinary experience. Yeah. And um, I, it, it just represented an opening to me that yeah. I hadn't had. And I never did it again because it somehow was so profound. Yeah. I just saw civilization after civilization being built. I mean, they all had names, like the Greeks, the Romans, yeah. and so forth. Being built, people living their daily lives, rulers doing the things rulers do, and then it all crumbling. Yeah. And, and then only the ruins were there. And then another one would come up. And this was just, it was profound. And I thought, I'll never, I'll never experience something like this again. And I also thought that I knew enough people who would have very bad experiences and that I was having it under the control of a master that I probably shouldn't take another chance. Mm -hmm. And I felt the same way about marijuana because Anne Sexton agreed with her, some fan, that she would review his uh, manuscript if he would provide her with some marijuana, because she was fascinated with it but couldn't get it. So he mailed her two marijuana cigarettes, and she did his whole manuscript. And one day, she, she and I smoked these two cigarettes. Really? <laughs> And we had the best time, and it was so funny, and it was lovely, wonderful. And I thought, oh, you know, I could do this forever. And <laughs> But I didn't have a chance again until I took my children and went to a ranch outside of Reno, Nevada to get a divorce from Robert Ames. And it was... Um, there that I met some friends from Chicago who were living in California then, and we went into the, the, uh, the Nevada hills outside of, uh, mountains outside of, uh, this was called the Donner Trail Ranch. Oh, yeah. And, uh, it was cannibals. Yes. And uh, so it was named for, as if, when the, my lawyer said, you're going to go to the Donner Trail Ranch, I said, the Donner Trail? <laughs> he said, yes, for the people who consume themselves. Do you remember that? <laughs> That's the theme of the divorce, was <laughs> it? turned out that he was getting a divorce secretly. The lawyer? 
Really? <laughs> he was a partner in the oldest, most venerable law firm in Boston, and he was doing it secretly because he was in love with a partner, another partner oh. in the firm. And he managed to juggle it all, and nobody ever found out. And I was the first one he told when he got back from his divorce and marriage to her. Because <laughs> he had just suddenly disappeared on me. And for six weeks, I couldn't find him. And he, I was being, you know, shuffled around. But anyway, that's beside the point. I. These friends from California said that they'd gotten some marijuana and that they wanted um, to smoke it, so I was fine. I got very paranoid. Uh, it was a very different experience. Yeah. I hadn't really wanted it, didn't feel good. Mm -hmm. I was worried about my kids because sure. I had them with me and I couldn't cross the border into California, so I had to be very sure I wasn't stepping over the line somewhere mm. or I jeopardized my divorce. Right. And I just was awful. And I thought, okay, no more That's marijuana. It. And then years later, I had the LSD experience, which was wonderful. Oh, but oh, I've never oh, had mushrooms, so yeah. I don't know what that's like. I've always thought that would be interesting. Yeah, I, I think most people would say that mushrooms are similar to LSD uh -huh. and the, the effects on yeah. the consciousness and all that. But much lighter. Uh -huh. uh, they don't last as long, so it's more like a four to five hour uh -huh. experience rather than eight or nine. Sure. And so you don't have the exhaustion yeah. that you can get with LSD yeah. toward you know six seven sure. hours. You're like okay, yeah, right. enough. Um, but uh, and they're also much more visual. So where LSD generally people find it to be more of a uh, cognitive, inner thinking, you know, um, con conceptual. Uh, mushrooms are more sort of fun, surface, colors, beautiful, pulsating, mm. you know, especially if you're in nature, uh -huh. uh, which, uh, you know, I would always recommend people sure. be in a yeah, safe, sure. natural environment right. where you're surrounded by beauty. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. While you were you were uh, talking about going to Mexico and working with the psychiatrist, I was thinking, I wonder if she's ever had any uh, encounters with uh, yeah. hallucinogens or any of the people yeah. at Harvard. Because around that time, of course, uh, Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary and Andrew right. Weil and right. lots of interesting people that right. I'm sort of connected to directly or right. indirectly were in that part of the world. And it was such an interesting time. That first... I don't know if you saw this story in Life magazine, which I think came out in 59 or so, maybe 58. Uh, Gordon Wasson and his wife went to Mexico and met Maria Sabina, this shaman in the mountains near Oaxaca, who introduced them to magic mushrooms. And they wrote this article as an anthropological you know, interesting travel sure. piece in Life magazine. It wasn't really seen as a counterculture drug thing at all. There was no counterculture to speak of in the popular consciousness. But that's the article that uh, Timothy Leary saw. I see. And then he went down, and some other people went down looking for her and to, like, experiment with this, and that started the whole ball rolling. Now, of course, LSD had been invented about uh, 13, 14 years earlier in Switzerland by accident. Right, right. Um, 
And it was completely, I don't think I mentioned this in, in the sessions uh, we did here, but it was marketed for the first 15 years as a psychotomimetic to health, uh, mental health right, workers, right. not as a something for the patients to take, but for the doctors to take. Do you know that? Yeah, the idea was that you're a psychiatrist, psychologist, uh -huh. what have you, you're working with psychotic patients. You take this drug in order to experience psychosis yourself, and this will give you a better sense of what your patients are going through and help you relate to them better. Now, subsequently, researchers have said, well, actually, the hallucinogenic experience isn't all that analogous to the experience of psychosis, uh -huh. but I think it's still such a beautiful idea yeah. that as a as a doctor or you know a provider a, you know whatever you're a, a cure a healer you are having an experience that mimics the experience of your patients to give you a deeper insight into what mm -hmm. they're going through i think the the impulse behind that is just so beautiful and so foreign to what's happening these days in medicine you know it seems to be pill vending machines more than anything right, else. Right, right, right. So, anyway, that's enough of a rant from me. We, we've gone way over an hour. It's an hour and a half. I've taken up time. It's our last day here. I know you have many people you want to see, so I don't want to take much more of your time. But I did want to ask you one thing. Right. Because you said earlier, your whole life people have been asking you for advice. Right. Uh, you've lived 80, how many years? 83. 83 years. Uh, you've seen so much. You've experienced so much. You're a very thoughtful person. You're sharp as a tack. There's no diminishment, obviously, of your thinking abilities. People write to me for advice. I never know what to say. Uh, although I'm at the age now where I'm older than most of the people who are sure. listening to this. And so... What do you have advice from your perspective? You know, a lot of the people who listen to this are in their 20s and 30s. They're trying to figure out what direction to go, what sort of how to make decisions about relationships and careers. Do you have is there something that you generally tell young people when they come to you? You mean a sort of. It's all sizes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In 30 <laughs> seconds or less, what's the secret to a happy life? <laughs> well, I heard you say something earlier about daring. Daring. I don't remember what the context was, but you said that, you know, you dared to do something and things worked out. I don't remember exactly what it was. I wish I could jump back and yeah. listen to it again. What do you think about taking risks and... I think it's such a crapshoot. <laughs> I mean, we That's, only hear yeah, yeah. about Columbus. Yeah, we not the ones who sank. <laughs> we don't hear about the ones who yeah, sank. Yeah. Uh, why don't we hear about the Vikings? They came much earlier. Mm. They were, you know, in open boats. They were extraordinary what they did. Yeah. Uh, but, but... They were all misses. Yeah. They they didn't take hold for some one reason or another. Right. Jamestown. Why why is Plymouth any more important than Jamestown except that Jamestown disappeared? They all died. Yeah. It died. So I think you have to take risks, but you have to also consider the consequences. You can't just leap 
into the water, icy waters, and expect to be able to swim because you'd like to. Mm. I think you really have to begin to learn to use your judgment and that we need to teach children to use their judgment for themselves at a very early age. And I guess the most important thing to do is to explore yourself. Mm. Continually explore yourself in every way possible that's not harmful. Mm. That you have to divide between getting into a cult and getting (laughs) seduced because there are some great minds that have gone with the Moonies, for instance, that are completely swallowed up. They could have been great men and women. And how come those people chose that path and didn't choose another path where they could have realized themselves instead of Dr. Moon's uh, ambitions? It's true. Intelligence. A friend of mine's a magician. Not professional, but I love very magic. good. Yeah. yeah, card tricks and yeah. sleight of hand stuff. And he will do the same trick for me ten times, and I can't figure it out. Uh-huh. And he, but he he won't show me how he does uh-huh. it. But he said I'll do it as many times as you want, and he'll keep doing it, and I'll keep watching. I watch, you know, different parts. I won't uh-huh. pull my attention. I'll look. I can't figure it out. And and he says, Chris, don't worry. The easiest people to fool are the smartest ones. The hardest people to fool are idiots and children because they don't look where you're trying to get them to look. You can't, right? So, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I always think, you know, when you, you, you talk about great minds right. who fall for silly things, right. intelligence often is uh, the opposite of an advantage when it's something like that because often people who are very intelligent don't turn that back upon themselves for self-analysis. They're too busy analyzing everything else. Yeah. So that's very good advice. Okay. To thine own self be true. And it follows as the night, the day, that you will not be false to any man. Exactly. Thank you for doing this, Lois. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And thought about a lot of things I haven't thought of. <laughs> eons and eons and eons. Well, I hope we could do it again sometime. <laughs> there, there's a lot more to this story, yeah. that's for sure. Thanks. Thank you. So 
you enjoyed that conversation and appreciate your support for the podcast especially those of you who do it through fundwhatyoulove.com where you can set it up to take a buck five bucks ten bucks whatever you can afford whatever you feel motivated to throw at the podcast every month uh, you don't have to think about it it's an ongoing thing you can cancel at any time of course that's fundwhatyoulove.com. That's run by Danny Osman, who also does the sound engineering for the show. You can find him at emeraldcitypro.com if you have any engineering, sound engineering needs. He's great. I vouch for him, of course. He's been doing the sound engineering for this podcast for over a year now, completely voluntarily. Uh, he's a cool guy. So if you have any business you want to throw his way, please do. Thanks to Basin and Range for the opening music. You can find them at basinandrangeband.com. Uh, there's a Reddit tangentially speaking discussion group. If you want to talk about episodes, throw a question at me, get a conversation started at Reddit. Just do a search for tangentially speaking, all one word. And, of course, thanks to Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts, another guy who's been supporting this podcast from the very beginning when I had about 15 listeners. He was there. He's still there. And uh, I love him. Never met the guy, but I love him. And I sure as hell love his shirts. So you can get his shirts at shoredesigntshirts.com. And, of course, all the shirts that are at chrisryanphd.com are made by Shore Design T-Shirts in Thailand and packaged and shipped to you by my mom, Julie. Uh, say hi to Julie if you order anything. She loves it when that happens. And of course, last but not least, thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear, Smoke Alarm, which reminds you to carpe fucking diem because you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Doesn't have 
ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground.